As we begin the message this morning, let me, as I do from time to time, ask you a question to ponder just to get our minds thinking in the right direction. And this is the question. Do you ever really give much thought about the future? Now, I'm not talking about graduation or college or marriage or children or retirement or any of those things that may be in your future. I'm talking about the next life. And when I say the next life, I'm not merely referring to heaven. Do you ever give much thought to the time when those of us who know Christ will be with him here on this earth in idyllic conditions? After all, in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The reference to inheriting the earth is talking about the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on earth in the future. He will be king of the earth, ruling from Jerusalem. The earth will belong to him and to us, his people. Right now, Satan is the ruler of this world. That's what he's called, the ruler of this world. He is called the God of this age. He is called the prince of the power of the air. But the day will come when Jesus will come back to this earth to establish his kingdom, and the earth will belong to him and to us, his people. Do you ever think about what that will be like? And did you know that the future millennial kingdom will be a time of reward for God's people? Jesus mentioned this to his disciples in Mark chapter 10. And I invite you to turn there with me, if you haven't already done so, to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> and please follow along as I read verses 28 through 31, which will form our text for the message this morning. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Then Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let me remind you of where we are at in the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel. This conversation follows the interaction Jesus had with a rich young ruler back in verses 17 through 22. That young man came to Jesus because he wanted to know what he needed to do to have eternal life. However, he wasn't willing to face his sinfulness and the true condition of his heart. So when Jesus forced him to come to terms with those issues, the young man walked away. Jesus asked him to follow, but the man refused. Keep in mind that Peter and the other disciples heard this conversation. And they heard what Jesus had to say in verses 23 through 27, the follow-up, about how hard it is for people to let go of whatever is holding them back to truly become a follower of the Lord Jesus. 
The disciples heard all of this. They were sort of processing it. And this prompted Peter to inquire of Jesus. Verse 28, Then Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Peter's mind was always thinking. He had heard what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do, and it occurred to him that the disciples had basically done that very thing. There is no indication that they sold everything they had and gave it to the poor, but that isn't a requirement to follow Jesus. Jesus said that to the rich young ruler because Jesus knew that man's wealth was the very thing that was holding him back. But the disciples, except for Judas, had let go of whatever was holding them back, and they obeyed the command of Jesus to follow. So Peter decided to inquire about their future rewards. Verse 28 here doesn't maybe seem all that clear to us that it's a question, but we do know from Matthew's account that after this statement here in verse 28, Peter specifically asked the question, therefore, What shall we have? He said, we we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? It sounds kind of brash or self-serving for Peter to ask such a question. But it's interesting to note that Jesus, on this occasion, did not rebuke Peter for inquiring. There were times when Peter or one of the other disciples said things that prompted Jesus to give a rebuke for being so out of line. For example, in Matthew 16, Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that as the Messiah, he must die on the cross. In response, Peter told Jesus, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And you probably remember how Jesus responded. He said, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus strongly rebuked Peter for his comment that was so out of line, so off base. We read of a similar kind of event in Luke chapter 9. James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritans, and Jesus rebuked them for their hard-heartedness. So my point is this. Jesus rebuked his disciples when they said things that were off base, when they said things that were out of line, said things that were improper, but notice, not this time. Jesus didn't rebuke them. He didn't correct Peter for this question. Therefore, it is safe to conclude that it is not out of line to wonder about what God has in store for those of us, his children, who have faithfully lived for the Lord Jesus Christ and followed him. Now, certainly, we would be out of line if our hearts get fixated on rewards in a a selfish way or if our thoughts were consumed with personal rewards. If the only reason why we live for the Lord and serve Him is to get rewarded, then that is wrong. But that wasn't the case with Peter and the other ten disciples. They were following the Lord and serving the Lord and living for the Lord because they loved Him. They would have followed the Lord regardless of any future rewards or not. And that's the way we ought to be in our own hearts as well. But if that is true of us, 
that we follow the Lord because we love Him. There is nothing out of line about wondering what the Lord has in store for His people in the future. So that's what Peter asked about here in verse 28. What about us, Lord? And Jesus didn't hesitate to answer. Jesus not only did not rebuke him, Jesus answered his question. Verse 29, so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice the phrase, now in this time, here in verse 30. We know from Matthew's account of this story that this phrase refers to the millennial kingdom that will be present here on planet Earth. In fact, in Matthew's account, Jesus began his response to Peter's question by saying this, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that is clearly a reference to the future millennial kingdom. And Jesus said this will be the time when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. That is not the same thing. Please understand, that is not the same thing as the new heaven and the new earth of eternity future. That is why Jesus used the phrase, now in this time, here in verse 30. It was His way of saying these rewards that I'm talking about will be enjoyed here on earth here on earth, during the future kingdom, and also in connection with eternal life, which is the last two words of verse 30. But understand, those are distinct, two distinct times. There will be a time of reward in connection with the earthly millennial kingdom, and there will be a time of reward in connection with future eternal life. But the primary focus of Jesus here is not on that future age to come, eternal life, it's on the earthly kingdom. When will that be? It will be right after the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth, which will be right after the seven-year tribulation period. How do we know that? Because Jesus said it in unmistakable terms in Matthew chapter 24. Back up with me to Matthew's gospel. And look at Matthew chapter 24. In this Olivet Discourse, Jesus said in verse 29, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the days he was just describing in the verses prior to this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with great, with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 
So Jesus is, is going to return to this earth after the tribulation period. That's what he says here in verse 29. What will he do when he gets here? Look at the next chapter, chapter 25, verse 31. There's a lot in between those two statements of chapter 24 and this one, but a lot of it is not moving the story forward. It's a pause for Jesus to talk about how important it is for people to be ready for that time. And after he's given all those exhortations, he returns to the story, the, the progress of it. Verse 31, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's what he just talked about in chapter 24, verse 29, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, he will take his place on the throne of his glory, and then he will begin the work of establishing his glorious kingdom. That's exactly what he said in Matthew 19. He said when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, when that happens, and we know from this text that he will sit on the throne of his glory at the beginning of the kingdom. So it is clear from Matthew's account of our text in Mark 10 that the time that Jesus is referring to is the future millennial kingdom. And the point that Jesus is making is that those of us who know the Lord and love the Lord and are faithful to him will be rewarded. What will those rewards be in the kingdom? For one thing, we read in the book of Revelation that faithful Christians will sit on thrones with the Lord Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Turn from the first book of the New Testament to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, we read this promise. Jesus says, To him, Revelation 3, 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Notice that this promise is to him who overcomes. Naturally, we need to ask the question and answer the question, to whom is that referring? Well, we don't have to guess because Scripture answers that for us. It refers to all true believers in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 5 says, who is, who is he that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ and have been transformed by him are overcomers. Those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ are overcomers. And here in verse 21, Jesus promises to all overcomers that we will sit with him on his throne. When the Lord Jesus victoriously finished his life's work, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down on the Father's throne. So this is the Lord's way of saying that when we when we have victoriously finished our life's work, we will be honored by sitting on his glorious throne. The thrones of that day were often like a, a, a large couch, actually. Therefore, someone who shared authority with the king could sit with him on his throne. 
So this is a picture of us sharing Christ's authority, his exaltation, and his reign. Think about that, beloved. Can you imagine this? It is impossible to fathom the depth of this kind of grace. To think that one day we will share in Christ's authority, his exaltation, and his reign. This is alluded to again over in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. So turn a few pages to the right. Chapter 20, verse 4. John says in this future vision, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now the first question we need to answer when we read this verse is, who is the they at the beginning of the verse that will reign? It says they will reign. Who's they? Daniel 7.27 says the Old Testament saints will reign with Messiah. Matthew 19, 28 and 29 says, saints who lived during the time when Jesus was here on earth will reign with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3 says, church saints will reign with Christ. And this verse says, the martyred tribulation saints who will be resurrected at this time will reign with him. So you can answer the question this way. If you say, who is the they in this verse? The answer is, all the saints who have received glorified bodies are included in the they. They will reign. Which leads to another question. Whom will we be ruling over or governing? We will govern the believers of the kingdom age who have not yet been glorified, have not yet received glorified bodies. Remember, some believers will enter the kingdom with their natural bodies, according to Matthew 25, 31 to 46. That is a description of the sheep and goat judgment. All the Gentiles who are alive at the end of the tribulation will be gathered before Jesus when he returns. They will be separated as sheep and goats. The goats will be sent away to the judgment of a fire, and the sheep will be invited into the kingdom. Thus, when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, and when the kingdom begins, everyone in it will be believers in Christ. Some will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. Others, those who come back with Christ, as John describes in chapter 19, will enter the kingdom in their glorified bodies. Those who enter the kingdom in their natural bodies will marry, have children, and populate the kingdom. And because conditions will be so ideal, there will be a population explosion like never before. The believers will have children, their children will have children, and and so on for a thousand years. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 65 verse 20 says that the person who dies at 100 years of age will be considered a little child. The indication then is that people will live throughout the kingdom unless they outwardly rebel and are executed. So the glorified saints will reign over all the people of the earth, and in short time, there will be billions. 
Isaiah 32, 1 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Jesus will reign, and we will share with him in his reign. The result will be that the kingdom will be characterized by righteousness, justice, and equity. The conditions of the kingdom will be so ideal that there will be a huge population explosion, and the absence of the curse on planet Earth will make it very easy to accommodate all the people on planet Earth without being overcrowded at all, or even remotely. As a result, it's going to take a huge amount of people to provide leadership and direction and organization and governing for all the people. Beloved, we are the ones who are going to be in those positions. We will be reigning with Christ. That's part of the reward to which Jesus refers in our text in Mark 10. But it's not all of it. Let's go back there and I'll show you what I mean. Go back to our text in Mark chapter 10. We know from the passages we looked at that part of our future reward will be reigning and governing with the Lord Jesus in the millennial kingdom. But there may be more to it than that because Jesus says here in verse 29 of Mark 10 that we shall receive a hundredfold. The point is clearly this. You cannot outgive the Lord. Anything you give up for the Lord will seem like a pittance in comparison to his rewards. Anything we suffer for the Lord's sake will eventually seem trivial in comparison to his rewards. That's why Jesus added the little phrase, with persecutions, here in verse 30. Following Jesus does cost us. That doesn't mean that we earn our salvation, but following Jesus can be costly. It involves sacrifice. It involves self-denial. It may also involve persecutions. But whatever the cost, it will be nothing when compared to our Lord's future rewards. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He is saying there's no comparison, which is the same point Jesus was making here in these verses. Pro Jesus promises that if you have to give up family for his sake, you will receive more family than you could have ever had. If you have to give up property or possessions for his sake, you will receive more than you could have ever had. In fact, Jesus said you will receive a hundred times as much. But that's still not all. Because the last phrase of this verse, <coughs> verse 30 says, and inherit eternal life. That is a reference to the eternal state of the new heaven and the new earth, which we usually just refer to as heaven. We talk about living forever in heaven. It will actually be the new heaven and the new earth. After the kingdom will be the eternal state consisting of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem as the capital city. So the point that Jesus is making here in this text is that our rewards don't end at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. 
Beloved, this is mind-boggling. We don't deserve anything but judgment, wrath, and condemnation. Yet the Lord saves us, and he forgives our sins when we come to him in humble childlike faith. In addition, he rewards us for faithfully following him. We will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, which will take place when the church is gathered to the Lord for a time of evaluation and assessment. And we will be rewarded during the millennial kingdom. But that's still not all. Jesus says here, after all that, there is eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. So that's what's in store for us who know and love and follow Jesus Christ. To say that this is magnanimous grace would be an understatement. No matter what we have gone through in this life, and no matter what we have endured, and no matter what we have sacrificed, there will be, absolutely, positively, there will be no regrets. Those who have had to leave houses or family or possessions because of their relationship with Christ will be rewarded more than can be imagined. So basically, our Lord's answer to Peter's question, hey, Lord, you know, we've left all and follow. What about us? Basically, Jesus was saying, Peter, no hardship is too severe. No sacrifice is too great. No one can outgive the Lord. His abundant grace will shower reward on us in a way that is somewhat beyond comprehension. It's humbling even to think about it. But that's the character of our Lord's grace. And His grace is further depicted in the next verse, verse 31. He says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What does this mean? This statement means that eventually... All those who have faithfully followed the Lord Jesus will end up the same. In other words, if you came to, came to faith in Christ at age 20, and you faithfully live for Christ and serve Him until you are 70, you aren't going to be rewarded more than the person who came to Christ at age 50 and faithfully lived for Him and served Him until He was 70. God doesn't count up the years that way. He doesn't say that 20 years of faithfulness to him is less valuable than 30 years of faithfulness to him. The issue with him is faithfulness from the time he called you into his family, whether that is for 50 years or 15 years. That's part of what Jesus means by the saying, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. How do we know that? Well, we wouldn't know it if this is all we had. But we know that's the case because in Matthew's account of this conversation, right after this statement, Jesus proceeds to explain the idea by telling a parable to illustrate what he means by this phrase, the last will be first and the first last. Back up with me to Matthew 19. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 19. The very last verse in this chapter, in Matthew 19, is the same as Mark 10.31, which is the last verse of that little paragraph that we've been considering this morning. 
However, notice that here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus elaborates on the statement. He doesn't merely make the statement. He elaborates on it. For whatever reason, Mark chose not to record the elaboration. Matthew chose to record it. Notice that the first word in chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel is the word for. For. The fact that Jesus opens this story with the word for tells us that he is expounding upon what he just said at the end of chapter 19. We have a chapter break here, which is a little bit unfortunate of a chapter break. Remember, there were no chapter breaks in the Bible when it was written. Those were added much later to help us, and they do help us break down the Bible into manageable parts, but they are not inspired. And this is an unfortunate chapter break because the very next verse, chapter 20, verse 1, begins an explanation by Jesus. This parable here in chapter 20 is an explanation of the statement at the end of chapter 19 And we know that is the case, not only because verse 1 begins with the word for, but because Jesus ends the parable in chapter 20 with his same words as the end of chapter 19. Look at verse 16. You'll see what I mean. Jesus says, for, in in, in chapter 20, verse 1, and he tells this story. And then in verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first last. Sandwiched in between that statement, chapter 19, verse 30, the very last statement there, and chapter 20, verse 16, sandwiched between is a parable. So this parable in chapter 20 is an illustration or an explanation of that sort of cryptic statement, the last will be first and the first last. So let's read this parable to give us insight to what Jesus means by that phrase. Notice how he begins. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius, which was a silver coin minted under the emperor's authority, was a fair wage for a full day of work. So this part of the story was something that the audience would have understood as Jesus said, this guy goes out, he hires laborers, he says, okay, I'll I'll give you a denarius for the day. That was a fair day's wage, and so they go out to work. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour. So this is later now. He goes out later in the day. He goes out the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. So three-hour increments here, and he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. Now, that would be quite a deal. You know, whatever a fair fair day's wage is, if you just want to use a round figure, say 100 bucks a day, so you get hired for the last hour and you get 100 bucks. That's pretty good, especially if 100 bucks is fair for working all day. So they get a denarius. And then the... uh, This went on to all of them. They each received a denarius. Verse 10, but when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. 
And they likewise received each a denarius. And when he, they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Now what is meant by this phrase? Is your eye evil or envious, depending on your translation? Well, back in chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus said, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Jesus was using a simple analogy in that verse. Your eye is the gate or the window that takes light into your body. If your eye is healthy and clear, then you can take in the light. If your focus is clear, then you can take in the light and see things clearly. Jesus was using that as a comparison to spiritual health and spiritual vision. He is saying if your focus is clear, then you can see things the way you ought to see them. If our focus is what it ought to be, we will have clear spiritual vision. We will see things the way we ought to see them. That's why this expression is used here in this verse. The, the landowner was saying this. He was saying to this, this, these group, this group of guys who were complaining that he was being so generous, he's saying, listen, is your focus blurred or fuzzy and warped and confused because I am choosing to do good by being exceedingly generous? The problem is not my generosity, but rather your focus. The problem is your perspective. And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to address with this parable. He is addressing our problem of jealousy and envy. He is addressing our tendency to embrace a sense of entitlement. He is addressing our attitudes when we think that, that more is owed to us. Lord, this isn't, this isn't fair. I mean, look how much I labor for you. How long? And this other person comes in at the last minute. They get the same thing. He's addressing the wrongness of our hearts when we begrudge others to whom he is good. So Jesus closed the parable in verse 16 by saying, So the last will be first, and the first last. That is exactly how Jesus ended the conversation in our text in Mark 10. And this parable explains that concept to us even more. It reminds us of three things. You could really say there are three concepts sort of bound up in this story and that axiomatic principle. Number one, reward from the Lord is not going to be based on the amount of work done, but rather upon faithfulness to the task given. Let me say that again. Reward from the Lord is not going to be based on the amount of work done, but rather upon faithfulness to the task given. This is so important to understand because some Christians get so discouraged that they want to throw up their hands and quit by saying, I can't do all the things for the Lord that so-and-so does. I just can't do everything that that person does. Listen, you don't have to. You don't have to because you're only required to be faithful to what God has given you to do. That's all you have to worry about is what God has given you to do. 
Secondly, this reminds us that God will sovereignly determine rewards. The point of the parable is not that all in the kingdom will receive the same reward, but that kingdom rewards depend on God's sovereign grace. God has the sovereign right to dispense rewards as he sees fit, and we may be surprised at how it all turns out. Some who are first today will be last, and the last will be first. But one thing you can be sure of, no one will be under-rewarded. Remember, in this story, the person who received a denarius received a fair wage for the day. There was nothing unfair about it. Thirdly, this parable also reminds us of the ultimate equality of heaven. No matter how long someone has known or served the Lord, that won't give him any advantage over those who only knew and loved the Lord a short time before entering eternity. The classic example of this is the thief on the cross. Now think about this with me. The thief on the cross received the gift of salvation just moments before he died. The apostle John came to be a follower of the Lord as a teenager, and he served the Lord until he died of old age, probably in his 90s. Guess what? The thief on the cross will enjoy the full blessings of heaven alongside the Apostle John. You say, hold it, that's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. It's grace. It's grace. It's the exceeding generosity of our good and gracious Lord. No wonder so many of God's people love the song Amazing Grace. That's exactly what it is. God's grace is amazing. And not just His salvation grace, but His rewarding grace. God's grace is amazing. Have you experienced it? Have you received the grace of God that is found only in Jesus Christ? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is the most gracious gift anyone could ever receive, and it is received by faith. So I ask you, have you humbled yourself before the Lord as a child and received his gift of salvation by faith? If not, I urge you to do so today before it's too late. Because God is a God of grace, matchless grace. But he's also a God of justice of righteousness. And those who refuse his remedy for their sin problem will justly face his wrath. But those who respond to his amazing grace will experience it for all eternity. I hope that's you. Let's bow together as we close. So as you bow your head in closing this morning, again, I want to ask you, have you received the grace of God, really? Or are you trying to earn salvation on your own by your works, by your church attendance, by other things? Have you cast yourself completely and solely on the grace of God for salvation? If not, do so today. And if you have, then remember what Jesus said to Peter on this occasion when Peter said, Lord, we, we followed you. What, what, what's it going to be for us? And Jesus proceeded to tell him, basically, Peter, you can't imagine what it's going to be. Because my grace is so overwhelming that it's going to be a hundred times 
anything you had to give up, a hundred times more than you could ever imagine. Because that's my grace. That's who I am. So child of God, be encouraged. Be encouraged to be faithful. You can never outgive the Lord. No sacrifice is too great. There will never in eternity, there will never in the future be any regrets for what we give up, for what we sacrifice, whatever the cost, there will be no regrets. Father, challenge and encourage our hearts with that truth this morning. So easy for us to get bogged down in this life and get discouraged and to allow our eyes to lose focus and clarity of perspective. So help us with this, this text, this truth that we've seen this morning to, to be refocused on being faithful, just being faithful to whatever you've called us to do, whatever, whatever you've put on our plate to be faithful. And we know from what Jesus said on this occasion as well as many other passages that your abundant reward will be more than we could ever imagine. And Lord, we acknowledge that we don't merely follow you because of the reward. We follow you because we love you, even if there were no reward. And yet in your graciousness, you promise over and over again that you will reward your people. So in strengthen our hearts with that truth. And in closing, we want to pray for anyone here who is outside of the kingdom, outside of your grace because they've refused to humble themselves, refused to acknowledge their need for the Savior and in simple childlike faith to receive Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit stir their hearts and draw their hearts so that today they would respond to your grace and see that because of your grace, forgiveness is available, salvation is available, eternal life is available. May they receive it in humility and brokenness with a willingness to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.